How should we start? Hey, everyone. Hello. So we're unlocking this interview from December today, which Phil and I did with Nate Holdren about his book, Injury Impoverished, which this is a conversation about workman's comp laws um, and legal regimes of certifying disability. But it's also a conversation about the ways that institutions enforce the economic valuation of life. Yeah, we felt that, we, you know, we talked a little bit about what uh, we should do for today's episode, actually for today's public episode. And we kind of ultimately decided that really what people needed to hear right now was this interview. Yeah. Partially because of the conversation stuff about the economic valuation of life, but also just in general, because what with the greater discourse happening about what it means to be quote unquote done with COVID mm-hmm. and the uh, so-called urgency of normal framework both of which i think are things that we're going to be talking about on monday in the in the patron feed at length which everyone should get excited about but i think wrapped up in those conversations about personally being done with covid is the sort of dismissal of you know obviously a lot of vantage points um Mm -hmm. on you know what it means to like live during covid but also especially like it pretty much ignores an entire conversation about the role of disablement and ability in workplaces, Mm -hmm. which I think you guys really, the three of you address beautifully in this interview. Yeah. I think one of the values of, of Nate's book and you like hear it come out on the, in the interview is like one of the things that happens with like workman's comp is this system is created to deal with like the pretty nightmarish circumstances of industrial uh, work and to actually like provide some sort of, you know, remuneration for the injuries uh, that occur in the workplace. But I think one thing that, that Nate's book shows is like there's a trade-off. And the trade-off is that a lot of the ways in which people experience those injuries and, and disablement in the workplace gets like purged out of yeah. the kind of legal structure. And what ends up happening is all these things sort of get left on the table. And as part of that process, you have people who are you know, reformers who are, you know, nominally like on the left, some of them socialists sort of get, you know, brought into helping to construct this system. Right. And I think it's really valuable conversation about the way that actual kind of movements for for justice get, you know, co-opted and rationalized into these systems that bleed out actually a lot of what something like uh, justice or like just compensation for the the violence that like is done in an industrial workplace uh, or any other workplace for that matter uh, creates. Absolutely. Plus, obviously, you know, the gatekeeping of who exactly oh, gets to be. Well, right. But then who exactly <laughs> needs who exactly gets to be in the role of knowledge production. Here. The experts. Who gets to yeah. Be, yeah. Who gets right. to be the expert. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus episodes like this one that we are unlocking, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, this is a really good example of the kind of stuff that lies behind the, the paywall. paywall. Yeah. Um, so enjoy the episode. We will see you on Monday in the patron feed. The reality is injustices like the ones I talk about will continue unless there's massive institutional transformation in society. Mm-hmm. Maybe the specifics will change, but but nothing fundamental changes unless there's a fundamental reorganization. Society is fundamental. Capitalist society is fundamentally violent. And I get this. That's very pessimistic. And I'm like, that's not pessimistic. First of all, it's true. So whether it's pessimistic or not, it's just true. Second, right. it's not pessimistic because <laughs> I think we could stop having a society. I think we have an economy that doesn't kill. I genuinely believe that. We could, we could have a zero fatality economy. Um, and then... The, 
people flip and they're like, oh, that's utopian. And I'm always like, well, time, yes. time out. I'm either a pessimist or a utopian. Like you can't, you can't come at me with both of those things. You gotta pick one. the death panel patrons thank you so much for your support we could not do any of this without you if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore today phil and i are joined by nate holdren nate welcome and thank you for coming on thanks for having me nate is the author of injury impoverished workplace accidents capitalism and law in the progressive era and is a historian as well as a professor of law, politics, and society at Drake University. So, Nate, I'm really thrilled to have you on um, to talk about the ways your work demonstrates how disability is constructed via a relationship to work. It's a kind of common sense justified because it's been codified in law, which you tell a history of in your book through the story of the creation of workplace injury compensation laws And I think this book in many ways is very focused on um, a different angle on something that we talk about all the time here on Death Panel, which is the way that the sort of legal identity of disability is constructed through certifications that separate the disabled or impaired body from the category of worker. So we've talked about legal regimes of disability translated through employment in the past on the show, like in relation to SSDI work credits health insurance, et cetera. But this is a conversation about a much earlier and older framework than one that we've covered before. And while you might think that a history of workmen's comp has more to do with the labor movement than with disability, the correct answer is actually that all things labor also always engage with issues of disability (laughs) under capitalism. (laughs) So um, this is going to be a conversation about workmen's comp laws and legal regimes of disability but also a conversation about the ways in which institutions enforce the economic valuation of life and how we can tweak and reform all we want. But until we address these basic structural issues at the very core of our administrative state, we can only really play with the variables at the edges turning up and down the dials of cruelty. So that's really the bigger picture underlying our conversation today. And we'll get to that. But I want to start us off in the beginning with some context. So Nate, for those who are not familiar with your work, can you briefly walk us through the project of the book and um, what you've been studying and sort of where you've come to on this? For sure. So let me tell you how I came to write it. Is that all right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I've been a Marxist for a very long time. I'm I'm 43. I became a Marxist in the 90s. and I became a historian in the late 2000s. So, um, but for a very long time, I was a Marxist with a day job as a historian. Um, <laughs> and so I was doing activist stuff and thinking about this stuff on my own. And then I was in grad school for history. And I just found, I first found these 10 lawsuits from women who worked in industrial laundries and they suffered horrible injuries. And I'm a I'm from a working class background. I'm the first person in my family to get a four year degree, um, let alone grad school. And so that spoke. And all the women in my family had worked for wages, so that kind of spoke to my experience. And um, I was had done a field in my department in women's and gender history. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to write on these 
women's cases. That's going to be the plan. And it was going to stop in 1910 um, because workers' comp laws begin to come in in 1910. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of a neat little decade project it'll be very tidy and then i was doing the research <laughs> for last it. words right? <laughs> yeah and, you know the project is all done contact with archives so i was in then i was in wisconsin at the um wisconsin historical society in mm. madison i actually was there right when when the protest kicked off against walker's budget bill in 2011 which was fortuitous time yeah um so i happened to be there for that but um but i found evidence that um I found one piece, one letter of a, of a disabled man who was losing his job because of workers' comp laws in 1931. And um, I only found it because the, the records of the Wisconsin Historical Society, they had two voluminous boxes and they were very, very well indexed by the, the Wisconsin Industrial Commission before they gave them to the Historical Society. And so I was going through the commission boxes and um, the commission had lost they had made had built its own index but that index had been lost and so there was oh now <laughs> a random there was it was literally zero order to them um and so i just had to read everything in both boxes and, and i'm really lucky that that index was lost because i would have not written the book um because i this wow. is 20 years later and it's about a guy um and so i was like oh that's really interesting and horrible um that'll make a good footnote for the ending of like why workers comps not you know particularly much better than the lawsuit based era that I was looking at with these women's cases. I just got to figure out why this is happening. Cause I don't understand it. Um, cause I had all these assumptions. So it was this letter from a company called the Wisconsin river paper company. It was a paper mill to the Wisconsin industrial commission saying, Hey, our, one of our doctors examined a guy and he's got a heart, he's got a liver condition such that if he gets hurt, if he's going to also have a heart attack and our mm. doctor says, mm-hmm. and they quote the doctor, the doctor, they're not making it up. The doctor's like, if he gets hurt, he's going to cost you more money under workers comp. So you should fire the guy. And so they write <laughs> to the commission and they're like, he's been here a long time. He's not really any good as an employee, but his dad's a really good employee. He's been here a long time. The guy's got a wife and kids. Like, can you let us out of our liabilities under workers comp? And the commission, the commission writes back and they're like, no, you can't ask him to let you out of the liabilities. Like you're not allowed to do that, but send us his address and we'll ask him for you. And so they, they send him a letter and he sends it back, quote unquote, voluntarily waiving his rights under workers comp. Wow. Um, and so here's a, here's a disabled man who in order to keep his job has to accept second-class status. And um, I hadn't thought a lot about disability at that point. I was really focused on um women workers and their like workplace experience. My initial thought was that these injury suits showed us something about waged work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, well, this is really wild. None of my assumptions that doctors are beneficial force that the administrative state um, workers comp helps workers at the time. I don't have those assumptions anymore. None of those assumptions (laughs) made sense in light of this. And I was like, so I got to find something that makes sense, makes this make sense. I'll find a book that talks about this. And then I'll go on and write the, the dissertation as planned. And I kept thinking about it. Like I drove home to Minneapolis and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, and at the time, no one had written on it. Since then, Sarah Rose has written a fantastic book called No Right to Be Idle. And she talks about some stuff related to what I talk about. It's a great book, but her book wasn't out yet. And so I was like more and more like, I'm going to really focus on this and because I, I wanted to understand it. And so then the, the dissertation was just a detective story. Like, um, is this the only example of this? Now I know yeah. absolutely not. And so it was just this. So what the dissertation had being was just kind of institution by institution, what happened. And what I said was essentially there's this underlying problem of capitalism hurting people over and over and over in the early 20th century, still today, but at an even, even greater rate than 
Right. And um, one institution sort of solves a problem for itself and then passes it down the line. And so the, the state um, courts hate the injury crisis because there's so many people get hurt. Um, in the early 20th century, um, the, we don't have good data, but the best estimate is that um, about 10% of workers will like leave a body part at work at some point in their working life, like wow. lose, a, lose a hand kind of thing. Um, so the rates of injury that are not physically removing pieces of you are, are obviously even higher and the fatal injury rates are really, really high. So, um, and judges complain about this because they're like, Oh, we have to deal with so many injury lawsuits. So courts that workers comp solves that problem. There's no longer lawsuits uh, over workplace injury clogging the courts. And it does make things better for workers a little bit because it guarantees payment because most workers mm-hmm. lost, lost their lawsuits. And it, but it's, it's a low payment. It's like half to two thirds of your wage based on the state. Right. And um, I'm paid better than a lot of early 20th century workers. And I could not cope with the one third loss of income. Like we would be screwed. Um, so it's not really fixing the problem of poverty for injured workers, but it depoliticizes it and it does make their lives somewhat better. But then that creates other problems for other institutions. And so I kind of went down the line of all the institutions who, who were this created problems for and then was like and at the end of the day you know workers and disabled people get get wrecked by it and so then i was out of i was done for a few years and trying to figure out what to say because it was a pretty good dissertation and i had nothing else to say and then (laughs) i was like oh that that was when the thing like i'm a marxist with a day job as a historian that kind of broke down after a while i was like no i'm really a marxist historian and so then the work i did for the book was really interpretive like i did a little bit more research not a lot it was much more like I'm going to bring to bear these theoretical categories that I was using to think about the world I lived in to really think about the historical material in a much deeper way. And so in the book, I really argue that essentially this is this process of barbarism. Workers get hurt and killed in really high rates, and that doesn't really stop. It declines slowly over the 20th century, and it's not really anyone's priority. It's it's kind of like the the COVID pandemic in the U.S. anyway, in miniature, where it's like, Lots of death will happen to people who are socially uh, insignificant and the people who are institutionally powerful will just kind of let it happen and they'll create institutional mechanisms to mostly depoliticize. That's their main, their main priorities are avoiding consequences. And then the consequences fall on the most vulnerable. And so the piece for disabled people in particular is that pre-workers comp, if you're a machinist and you've been a machinist for like 30 years running a drill press or something, you're going to lose a finger or three over time. And that's awful, but it's like a mark of being an experienced machinist or if you're a railroad brakeman or something. And that's an awful cost of work, but it's not disqualifying from an employer perspective. And what workers comp does very quickly is it says the employer will pay for the full cost of not the full cost. It will pay a share of the full capacity that's lost by the injury. So if, and that that sounds like a wonky technical distinction, but if if I have two working eyes and I lose one of those eyes, it's my understanding I'll still have like 65 to 70% of my sight because that's how binocular vision works. So if you have a glass bottle factory where a glass bottle explodes and a two-eyed person loses one eye, they lose about 30% of their sight. If a one-eyed person loses one eye, they've lost 100% of their sight. Mm-hmm. So there's a moment when the law says, well, we'll compensate for the body parts, which right. is awful for the disabled people in the sense that they're second class citizens in that way. It's, it's institutional discrimination that devalues the, the bodies and lives of disabled people. But then that flips to 
what is a, on the face of it, a much more sane standard and fair standard that a person who's blinded gets paid the full legal compensation for blindness, whether it's because they lost two eyes or one eye. But what that does is it makes injuries to people who are already physically impaired much more expensive. Right. And right. very rapidly, employers push anybody. They just start ratcheting up the standard and it gets higher and higher until we get to the 30s. Like I said, where there's a guy with liver disease and the doctor's like, yeah, you're not employable anymore because you have liver disease. And, and so what I argue is that it's in effect, the these are people who are in, in a common sense sense of the term disabled, but they're not at least relative to employment. They're not socially disabled, really. They're fully employable they're, they're subject to other forms of discrimination in, in wages and so on. But, so there's a transformation really in what disability means. But that's a better way to put it. The transformation in what the ramifications of disability are and a transformation of who's counted as disabled for what purposes. Mm-hmm. And um, as someone who spends a lot of time on Marxist theory, in a way, it's kind of it's kind of a disappointing thing because a, a very vulgar Marxism explains it. It's, it's entirely right. just financially driven. Um, well, uh, but so if that's I the could, story. If yeah, I please. could, like, I think the, the thing that really... I mean, the, the story is just fascinating in, in its own sense of what it tells us about uh, the way that sort of disability is assigned like a cash value today. But I also I think that there's this like I, I as I read your book, there's this like historical resonance that felt very, even though very remote historically, like I was like, oh, that that, that feels very familiar. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is you have this terrible this this absolutely like morally repugnant system where um First of all, like mo- most hazard that happens to workers is just like that's their problem. Uh, it's just like that's, you know, the law doesn't like treat it to the extent that the law does. You know, they have to go through this like trial in which they bear this significant like burden of proof and it, it you know, disadvantage uh, disadvantages them in a variety of ways. Um, but then you have these people who I mean, so, and some of them are socialists um, and they're studying uh, all of this stuff. And they're studying uh, what happens in industrial workplaces. And so I'm thinking here about Crystal Eastman, uh, who writes this book, Work Accidents in the Law, and is focusing, you know, this is part of the Pittsburgh survey uh, in the early 20th century. So I, I came into contact with this when I was a kid. You go through like the museum, this history museum in Pittsburgh, you actually see a little copy of this book. Wow. And the, so the interesting thing to me, right, is you have these people who are like, you know, many of them are like on the left. They're studying this. But then in trying to describe it um, and trying to, like, do something about it, they end up advocating for this system that actually ends up reproducing many of the same problems and, and the new problems through, through uh, workman's comp. And, you know, it sort of rationalizes uh, this, you know, uh, process and, and depoliticizes it, which I feel like is a lot of the, the thing that confronts, like, people sort of on the uh, the left, so to speak, today is like there's this this uh, devil's candy of of reformism. Right. And so I'm like curious about how that happens or, or at the very, the very least how you think or, you know, those people who are like ostensibly these are people who are like red marks who like understood and like were at some point in broad and like a more radical like critique of um, capitalism, how they get kind of um bought off and ultimately helped to construct this, this system, which really does just allow employers to kind of intervene and, and, you know, the, the profit motive is still there and, you know, like how they get sort of bought into that system. Yeah, totally. So Crystal Eastman is a, she's one of my, she's in my mind, one of the most sympathetic figures in the book. Absolutely. To to me. And, you know, in a way, a kind of a tragic figure because 
so Chris Leesman is a, a socialist and a lawyer and a, an early social scientist. I and mean, she's a, she's a phenomenal intellectual and, and she's someone who is um, trying to make, trying to do some good in the world. I mean, she's also a deep humanitarian. And, you know, I guess I would say, you know, part of the way, the way I wrote the book, um, I do think that workers comp is a qualified advance, but I think the workers comp is still in place today. And this is sort of like a, a theoretical and, and political issue. I didn't want to write a book that celebrates better because the better that's there is still super fucked up. Mm, and so right. it's like, you know, like, but like, you know, if, 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 if we got into a time machine, I, I wouldn't go back and prevent the passage of workers comp. Like it'd be like this and much more. Um, and so it was like really like a critical story of the shortcomings and the shortcomings are massive. But, you know, Eastman, I think, is someone who is and there are other people like her who are like, you know, so Crystal Eastman, she's she she's writing work, work accidents in the law, as you said, as part of the um, the Pittsburgh survey. She's um, she's in the homes of steelworkers who've been injured really badly or mm-hmm. in the homes of the family members who were of, of steelworkers who were killed. And so she sees the immediate the pain really intensely and has these very personal conversations with them. And she sees the poverty from lost wages. And my sense is that she's someone who's like, we need to do something right now. And so she's committed to socialist revolution, but she's also like, we need change today. And I think that this is just a hard reality for being someone on the kind of revolutionary left that, you know, if you're a humanitarian person as well, and I think anybody who's on the, most people on the revolutionary left are humanitarians as well, you know, we want change immediately because we're big hearted people, but the kinds of deep fundamental change that really honor human dignity, they don't, they just don't happen overnight. And and those two things together mean the hard reality. If we're going to spend a long time in situations where human dignity gets trampled on and, and the category of like, well, Hey, it's less trampled on. Like that's not a satisfying category. And that's the, because the, I think the social reality is just going to stay really ugly for a while. But Eastman is, I think, so I think it's a well-intentioned effort to do, do some good. And I think that there's nothing cynical about it, but it's just the, the options for, I mean, like if you look at, you know, what's the root, I'm, I'm not myself and I can agree to disagree on this, but I'm not myself an optimist about um, the ballot box as a route to change in the oh, U.S. Yeah. Yeah. But sure. we can certainly, we're not topping out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that said, the Democrats are not sending their best, most big hearted candidates either. Right. So like we could have better pandemic response and better people in office and so on. And it would be qualitatively better in, in terms of a lot of individuals, human, human lives. And it would still be a, a situation of like less trampling on of human dignity. It would not be a fundamental social reorganization. And so I think like, that's just sort of the reality of this kind of march through the institution politics. And that's what Eastman's doing for very understandable reasons. What ended up happening though, is there are all these other forces who are like, yeah, we also want a reorganization, but not for any humanitarian purposes. So what businesses want is just for liability. So the, the right before workers comp, and this is a major factor in why it happens, the court system gets really volatile. So we're, most workers are still losing, but there's occasional really big, like huge payouts like in inflation adjusted dollars, like 350 grand for an injury. And businesses are like, that's a really scary threat for us. We just want a fixed number that we can budget for. Also, every time a, a business goes to, goes to court for a lawsuit, they have a pretty good chance uh, for an injury lawsuit. They have a pretty good chance that they're going to win, but there's a slim chance they're going to lose. And if they lose and their competitor wins, they're at a, a competitive disadvantage. So they're like, if, if we just regularize this, if everyone has to pay this 
this, basically this tax in a sense. If everyone pays an injury tax, we're all paying it, then there's no competitive disadvantage and we can just budget for it. So that's what businesses want. And then there's some kind of mainstream social scientist types who are like, we want ordinary, we want order, we want an orderly macro economy. And so that's the kind of the hegemonic ideas and the broader point of what the law is doing. And Eastman within that, that's kind of, that sets the terms of what can be accomplished. And so she's like, well, let's make it pay money to injured workers. And, and she does succeed in helping bring about more money in working class pockets, which is a qualified advance. But I just think that that's, there's just a low ceiling for what can be accomplished through that kind of institutional work, you know, then, and I would say now as well. Um, but I find it really tragic. You know, like there are people, I had somebody ask me once, like, what would you think about Eastman reading your book? And I'd be like, well, you know, she's dead, so it can't happen. But, but I would, I would not want her to read my book. There are people who, if I could get into a time machine and be like, force them to read the book and be like, you're a monster, you know, live with that. That'd be great. But Eastman would be like, I just would like, I'm glad she doesn't, wouldn't have to know because, um, I think that I really do think it comes from a good place. And I don't think that it's intentional on her part. I think she got played basically. I think that that's in my view, kind of what kind of the left, but work within the Democrat kind of institutional politics. That's probably what is the most likely outcome of those kinds of politics broadly, unfortunately. That said, part of why those politics appeal is because they do make concrete differences in the yeah. individual lives of real people on a humanitarian basis. That's mm-hmm. why, that's why I call them the devil's candy, right? Is right. That like, well, yeah, yeah. They, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't Absolutely. be alluring. They wouldn't be alluring if it was truly, um, you know, nominal or symbolic, right? Totally. The fact is there are material aspects of it. And the, and the fact that there is, is, and, and we talk about this all the time in other contexts, just like listeners familiar with like the Medicare for all conversation is like, mm-hmm. it's the fact that these alternatives actually do do things for people. People that that cut off that um uh that that the larger sort of radical potential so 100%. Um, so I, I don't know I I just found it really interesting to read about this like process in a completely different uh, vein. Well, one of the things I really wanted the book to do is to be like, here's a terrible moment, here's the best thing on offer in that moment, and that terrible thing is still terrible. <laughs> well, no, I think it's a really important lesson though, and I I feel like there's one point very early on in the book where you talk about it as sort of being um like a concerted attempt to um like right against the uh oh here the no big deal common sense tyranny of the actuarial table right because the, yeah. the the fact of the matter is is that these reforms um are popular as the devil's candy on the left because they do have the capacity to make nominal marginal um you know overwhelming improvements right and the fact that those marginal nominal improvements are overwhelming and transformational in some people's lives is really only just a um broader indictment of our entire political economic system right it's not necessarily like proof that those reforms are actually um progress or good right it's it is um, ameliorating, right? But it it does create these compound problems. But part of the reason why it's allowed to move forward under the sort of political regime that is very pro-business in the United States, right, is because it also reinforces this economic framework of sort of how we're going to itemize in order to have some sort of overview and control and power over labor power, too, because it it you know it it's a convenient way of um of supporting people who open up questions as to whether we're doing things properly right so if you think about 
doing things properly in this system that we live in is that you go to work, you earn a wage, and because of that wage, you're entitled to the survival that you can buy, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of like overly simplistic, yeah. but like at a base level. And so the the sort of I- the workplace injury, right? The um, injury in the course of working, right? Which occurred before workman's comp, there was a structure of having to prove that it came through no fault of your own, and that you didn't, you know, do something negligent to cause your injury. And it was the sort of like categorical exception of the true workplace injury became, um, you know, the unimpeachable good worker, right? And so you already have this system of classifying workers into the good injured and the bad injured, which are really, you know, determining like someone's survival based on the company's ability to prove whether or not they were culpable in the workplace accident. And as we all know, all employers are ultimately culpable for workplace accidents. I mean, it's like there was yeah. a story I saw this morning where someone was like, there was no disaster training in that Amazon warehouse where like 60 yeah. people died because they wouldn't let them go home. And it's like, I'm sorry, how much disaster training should a person have to be able to survive a tornado in like a flat open warehouse in yeah. a state that doesn't really get tornadoes, right? That's absurd, right? The problem is... They were kept at work to die, right? And that's yeah. fundamentally the issue. But, you know, the 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 real thing that I think is just really so consistently well argued in your book is that these reforms are not only attractive because they fix things for, you know, individuals within the working class, right? At an individual level. They are also attractive because they bolster and solidify this actuarial approach to managing labor power and commodifying labor power to an extent that is really um, advantageous to business, right? And advantageous to the growing insurance industry at the time. Absolutely. And really, like the fact that it helps workers is incidental and is like why it appeals to us. Yeah. But that's nobody's yeah. priority. What, what, what the powerful want out of this is that it solves a problem for them. And so like one of the major constituencies behind workers' comp particularly is... Um, so in, in the 18, are large manufacturing corporations that are fairly vertically integrated and, and are fairly monopolistic. So in, in the 1890s, there's massive economic crises. Lots of the companies go out of business. Lots of other companies survive by merging. And I forget the numbers now, but it's something like 3,600 large corporations at the beginning of the, or 3,600 corporations at the beginning of the 1890s and like 1,500 by the end of the decade. So there's, and, and it's oh, wow. not that there's less business being done, it's that there's fewer firms doing the business. And, and those firms get larger as well. And so, and also there's more knowledge being produced about the injury problem. So if you're in an right. industry that kills one worker in a thousand every year and you run a business of a hundred people, you'll go, you might go 10 years to roll the dice with no injuries. If you're in that industry and you employ 30,000 workers, it's not really a roll of the dice anymore. You can just plan that you're going to kill 30 people every year. You just don't yep. know where, where they're going to be. And so those large, so the large, the law of large numbers kicks in. And so these larger and larger corporations are like, Oh yeah, people are just going to die. We, that's a, that's fixed now. It's not chance anymore. It's not really an accident. The accident is, is who dies, where, and when exactly knowing that that's going to happen. So there's actually some companies like international harvester, they start bringing in their own versions of this, of, of, of workers' comp in-house. And so they start advocating for it because like, we're already doing this. If you make everybody do it, the smaller firms go out of business because they can't afford it. The other firms that aren't doing it, we're not at a competitive disadvantage anymore. And so, because, so, so it fixes a problem for them and that's what they want. You know, like by analogy, it's my understanding that the insurance companies today that insure other insurance companies, reins- reinsurance companies they're called, 
they are tremendously concerned with with climate change because if flood insurance, if there's a huge flood in a place where there's lots of flood insurance and and it's so many so much flooding that those flood insurers can't pay for it, the reinsurers have to pay them. And so the reinsurers are like, boy, climate change sucks because of our balance sheet. They have they're not humanitarian institutions. They have no interest like <laughs> we do in fixing climate change. They have a financial interest in, in the worst attenuated sense, which is arises from the fundamental issues that generate these catastrophes in the first place. And so in a way, it's like a repetition. Fix this local version of how the catastrophe touches us so we can continue the deeper logic of social catastrophe. Well, that's very important to note because there's a there's a bad version of this historiography. Right. And and I see this not just like in in like industrial history, but it's actually in the history of um like democracy as well people are like oh don't don't you see like it's actually managerial capitalism because it demands stability and predictability that gives us things like you know uh these these you know like social some social protections even like democratization in certain places because elections like you know are, are somewhat can be like like calculated predicted and so on and it's like no no it, it doesn't give us any of those things in any meaningful sense, it gives us those things as long as they do not conflict with the bottom line. And once that conflict like becomes clear and once the contradiction becomes clear, then you actually see the logic of their advocacy for things like what workers come for what it is, which yeah. is just like a way of like padding um, uh, their like it, it, ma- maintaining some sort of consistency in their workforce. We were going to let you starve, but now it's profitable not to. So hey, you're welcome. And uh, also, I think it's thing of like, hey, if my house catches fire and the firemen show up and they put it out, I'm glad my house isn't on fire, but I'm still living in the shell in the aftermath. So like those rights that you're talking about, so like those matter, but it's not like very many people have a, a particularly good life. And so like I think that that historiography, what a lot of that it amounts to is like be grateful that it's not worse than it is. So shut the fuck up and stay where you are. And like, like we see that sometimes with like, people are talking about this right now with the pandemic with Omicron, where they're like, oh, it's kind of mild, like, you know, or, or the appalling things are like, it's only disabled kids who've died from Delta. Right. And it's like, and I'm supposed to find that reassuring. Like I'm supposed to be grateful that it's like only quote unquote, only that many dead children. Like, but that's like the logic of, the, of these kinds of claims is like, hey, it could be so much worse. So right stop thinking that you deserve any better because you don't like that's the, the loud implication. The liberals don't often say that out loud because they don't like to take that posture. But, but I wanted to write the book very forcefully to be like, this is not a kind of nostalgic or like be comfortable. Like I wanted to be like the, the institutional stopping point that was arrived at was arrived at for ugly reasons and is, is an absolutely unacceptable stopping place. I did as I said, it is a qualified advance, but like the advance is insignificant What's much more important to my mind is the total inadequacy of of where the process came to rest. Um, And what we deserve as human beings is so much more. Um, And I did try to write it as kind of, I mean, like I said, it originated as an empirical kind of detective story, just what happened. But in the interpretive work, I did want to write it as like a, this is an example of a larger pattern. The best that they offer us is really still pretty bad. And then they, they act like we ought to be grateful. Yeah, and I think oftentimes the sort of bar, like the the naked barbarism of like the previous system, I feel like is often held up as a means of um, trying to encourage like solidarity built around these labor movement reforms. But one of the things that, you know, Artie and I did a lot of um, 
research into and have a lot of discussion of in our book is how also, you know, a lot of these changes, which have been really key victories in creating the narrative of the labor movement, you know, things like um, pensions. And I'm thinking here of like the Brotherhood of Railway Workers who Mm. not only like, you know, won major victories on pensions that, you know, changed people's lives. They also stood up some of the first ever um, long-term care facilities ever that were, you know, supposed to be run by Brotherhood members for Brotherhood members. And they ultimately shuttered that after decades of increasing austerity and and it just you know it's it's a disaster right but these these sort of narratives like workmen's comp and 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 pensions and the these winds of labor are are such a big part of how we think of the labor movement and ultimately these are victories which have had tremendous consequences on disabled people and i think it's not a coincidence that this narrative, right, of labor in the 20th century and the, you know, the sort of moves that get that that get made and abandoned in order for the sort of modern 21st century workforce to emerge, right? Uh, these yeah. these sort of narratives like coincide with disabled people being pushed further and further out of the workplace and of the growth of benefits that, you know, are only contingent on certification as a person who, through no fault of their own, can no longer work beyond the shadow of a doubt. And it's both key to the also the construction of medical authority within the United States. And so there's this, I think it's not a coincidence that all these things are sort of happening at the same time. And I like in your in your book that you're really pushing sort of against the contingent read of things, that these are sort of phenomena that are happening and um, that there could have been any outcome. And you really are kind of forceful about saying, you know, this is more about creating like a set and standard path forward. And you kind of hinted at that a little bit when you talked about sort of in your intro about how this was sort of a smart idea someone had that then ended up getting passed along. And I wonder if you could talk about for a second sort of how this like you know, how workman's comp really spreads, because I think it's thought of often incorrectly as being sort of like a federal mandate all of a sudden, but it's actually very different how it moves through. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, um, it, so the United States is relatively late to adopt workers comp relative to the countries that the U S tends to think of as its peers. So, uh, Germany brings them in, brings in workers comp laws much earlier. And I'm not a German historian, but it's my understanding that the process is fairly similar in terms of the causal mechanisms that um, powerful large corporations are trying to escape liability and they don't like the outcomes in courts and they're looking for a regularized economic playing field and that's their interest and that's the fundamental kind of point behind the laws and so germany brings them in britain brings them in in the 1890s there's a couple other places and um, the injury crisis is just intensifying in the United States. And there's a process over time of like w- workers are aware that workers are dying and being injured all the time, but workers right. are not politically, they're institutionally shut out. And um, and what happens is there's this kind of boy, injury seems like a problem. We should study it. Wow. It turns out it's like the it's like the climate report. It's like, wow, it turns out the problem's even worse than we thought. We should study it further. Oh my God, it's <laughs> even worse than we thought. Let's study it further. And it's just kind of and it gradually eventuates in some institutional action as powerful actors discover they have an interest in it and begin to show up to the table. But it, it um, it's really a state-by-state state process. And so the first eight states um, to have workers' comp enact them and they go into, they go into 
there, those, that legislation goes into play in 1910. And the, that state-by-state process, the, most states, especially early on, that pass workers comp, the, the laws emerge out of commissions that are a group of smart people whose job it is is to study, the, produce knowledge about, the, about society for state purposes. And those commissions network among themselves very quickly. Right. So there's a couple of conferences <laughs> of those experts. And so it's spread state by state. So the first 19, there's none, none on the books in 1909. By 1920, 42, 42 of the 48 states have them. So it's a pretty rapid state by state change. And it's really driven kind of from the top down and from the middle down. The labor movement, at least initially, um, the, uh, are is opposed to this because they're like, we don't want to give up the right to sue. And there's mm-hmm. some, you know, there, there's some, that's a complicated thing. Um, the, the AFL is fairly conservative. So the fact that the AFL opposes it isn't, it's not clear that they're right on that, but that's the, that's the reality. It's not really labor movement driven. The labor movement gets on board very late because they're like, all right, they see the writing on the wall. They're like, this is going to happen. And we want to see it at the table. But early on, they're like, we don't, we don't trust the state. And we we and there's also a kind of ideology of hey we're manly men and we have a, and we're citizens and we have a right to sue we don't want to give that up so it's kind of an alloyed thing but but it is just it's not really it's not a firm below kind of process and it's really not a worker driven or, or union driven process and uh, as it catches on state by state then it becomes a kind of states are competing with each other and it becomes clear that the the best competitive environment for business is one that has workers comp. And so then states are more and more like, well, we need to do it as well. And there's also a little kind of cultural competition and kind of ego, like, well, Hey, all the advanced states are doing this and we think we're pretty advanced. We can keep Mm. up with, you know, we can keep up with the the coastal states. So we'll pass it too. So yeah, that's what happens. And, uh, and it's not a federal process. The federal government largely stays out of it. Um, they produce knowledge. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is an important actor right. in terms of producing the information, but the states are really where it happens. And in a way, I think there's an analogy there with um, in 2021 with employment law. So, like we see the fight for 15 happening in the labor movement today. Where right. this, so the the National Labor Relations Act in 1935 creates a federal body of labor law that cannot be varied. So the Wagner Act for private sector workers is a floor and a ceiling. The national minimum wage is only a floor, so states can experiment, and and that's a pattern. This is a longer conversation, but this is a pattern I'm actually kind of worried about. That um, labor law is broken, and and the mechanism for for fixing it is Congress, which is also broken. Employment law is is much easier to vary, and so there's been a shift in the labor movement toward experiment with individual rights in the workplace in in the 20th 21st century. And, and this is, an, in a way, an analogous story. There's not a mechanism in the early 20th century to change how collective bargaining and negotiation between workers is regulated until the 30s. And so we see, instead, we see a fix at the level of individual rights for workers at a state-by-state basis within employment law, workers' comp is employment law. Yeah, and I think it also, you know, it, it's interesting because there's there are these, like, sort of parallel developments also in, like, how medical authority and influence at this time yes. is also growing, too. And the role that doctors are playing increasingly, I think, in legal decisions leading up until the transition to workman's comp, I think is also really key. And this is not the first time in like U.S. history that, um, you know, doctors have have <laughs> levied and gained cultural authority and gained sort of class position um, through like their certification as experts within the legal arena. And this is also something that's sort of broadly happening at the same time. What you have in the early 1900s is 
doctors are really becoming part of the upper middle class. And that was not necessarily the case before. Mm. And, you know, I I think in the sort of professionalization, you also have these advocacy organizations, these professional organizations like the AMA, the American Medical Association or the AHA, the American Hospital Association. You have a formation of these sort of Um, you know, moral authorities on ethical guidelines for the profession, right? And there starts to be this sort of standardization of of how we evaluate bodies. And part of that comes from the demands of the military industrial complex needing a way to try and evaluate soldiers as there are like lots of changes going on in terms of orthopedics, whether or not people can, you know, be given prosthetics around the same time. And, And this is really also when surgery is developing in the United States as being sort of cutting edge. The U.S. was not known as being good at medicine until this period of time, right? This really emerges in the early 10s and 20s before before we really even have anything close to the kind of medical authority that we think of today, especially in the context of the the pandemic. And you you sort of talk about, at the beginning of chapter four, you talk about this, this moment that you have where you were encountering lawsuits brought by injured employees and reading these claims that due to their disabilities, they would never be able to be employed again. And you just you were saying you sort of you it seemed obvious to you. You took it as fact. And that's also, you know, this is the same time where that becomes an obvious fact. Can you talk about that a little bit if, if you don't mind? Because yeah. I know maybe it's like a, a I don't know if you like want to talk about this because maybe it's like weird to be like, oh, I didn't used to notice that, <laughs> that I thought it was just OK for disabled people to be not in the workforce. But I, I feel like it's a moment that we all have and it's so rarely discussed. And that's why I really appreciated that you actually explicitly like mention this in your book, too. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to talk about it. I mean, the book has the book was I, I learned a lot by writing it. Um <laughs> I think it's a smart book. I like the book. Um, I'm not as smart as the book, really, because the book is an accumulation of my labor over a 10 year period. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not I don't live over 10 year spans like I'm, I live minute by minute and minute by minute. I'm a lot dumber than I am over a 10, <laughs> 10 year span acu- accumulated in the book. And I, I just learned so much. So, yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I. So my brother in law was uh, in a, a horrible car accident in the early 2000s and is paralyzed from the waist down. And sorry. Is, and it's uh, thank you. I mean, it's all it's awful. It's a long time ago. So it's not a, not a fresh thing, but it's, it's an awful thing. But, um, you know, he's had trouble finding work and so on. And just kind of like from that experience and just sort of living in the world, the association between, you know, oh, well, of course, disabled people can't work. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. dis- disabled mm-hmm. means, you know, in the kind of vernacular sense, physically incapable of doing the labor that's necessary to have a job. Like that's the vernacular sense that I had in my mind. And that says, really, there, there's a an apolitical neutral labor process that's just out there in the world that nobody's right. responsible for. There's no power involved. And some people are just naturally or, you know, through no fault of anyone else, incapable of, of encountering that natural process. Um, and that's kind of the ideology. And that was in my head as I started reading the process, the, doing the project. And like I said, I started with these women's lawsuits from women who worked in industrial laundries. And the machine that a lot of the cases I initially just happened to just accidentally found were women who worked on an, an, industri- uh, an ironing machine that they would run flat linens through and it involved metal rollers that were steam powered. So they were moving, moving independently of like through motors, motor driven, steam driven, and they're steam heated. Sounding. Yeah. And, and they're steam heated. So they're hotter than boiling water. And 
women were driving kind of with their, their hands, pushing sheets and tablecloths and stuff into these to iron them for fancy restaurants and stuff and hotels and wet linens are sticky. The work is very physically demanding. Um, it may not, people don't get it. Sometimes why on a sale, we were pushing linen into a, into a roller, why that's physically demanding. The, 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 they're in a production line. And just before them is someone bringing them a huge bucket full of wet laundry. So if you think about like when you've right. done your laundry and you pull the wet laundry out of the washer and put it in the dryer, it's like kind of heavy. So like very three times as much at least. Yeah. yeah. And if you're doing that for 12 hours a day, by the end of the day, your body gets really tired and, and it and sticks to itself. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. And so you're physically, you're doing physically demanding work. You're very tired. It sticks to itself. And there's not a lot of room for error because the, the cloth wraps around your finger. It's late in the day. You get pulled into the machine. And so, and the women would get their fingers burnt off and, and crushed by these machines. And um, so that in their, in their lawsuits, these women and their lawyers all say, I'll never work again because of my injuries. And I took all, you know, as I said, my interest when I first started working on this was as a labor historian and a gender historian, women's gender historian. And so I hadn't really thought about the law. I hadn't thought about disability. And, and I was like, just sort of, and I am very sympathetic to the plaintiffs. They're the, they're the characters in this sort of quote, quote unquote characters. They're the people I care the most about in the story. These, these women are very sympathetic to me. So I just take them at their word in court. And then later I found evidence in some congressional testimony where women go back to work. And so I had, had not, I had just hadn't really thought about that. And I was like, oh, like actually this, they're not, they haven't lost the capacity to perform the labor. I had underestimated what the, what physical capacity people who don't have fingers actually have. And I had taken the labor process for granted in all these ways. So that was just kind mm-hmm. of like really threw me. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. And that's, so that's then when I started reading a lot more in disability history and disability studies and was really totally changed the framework. Like, Oh, this is not what's happening. But also, I mean, what, what are you going to do in court? Of course you're going to go in and say, because of my disability, I'll never work again. So that was also the thing was like the, the courtroom is an interesting situation. It's not like a journalist just talking to you about your life. Um, right. So that really made me have to rethink a whole lot. Um, the, the other thing I will mention as long as I'm talking about this is that, you know, this is, this is the court process. Part of why I put it in the book was just that I spent a lot of time researching it and I wanted to do something with that work. But the interpretive work that it does, the court system is terrible in lots of ways. Workers lose all the time. And there's also a way in which th- these people who go to court have to hear their lawyers say, look how hideous they are with their disability. Right. It's a profoundly mm-hmm. ableist and traumatizing process. At the same time, in court, people can say things like, I was in the machine for half an hour and I never lost consciousness and I suffered agony. And there's all these dignitary claims that can be made. And, and part of why I wanted that to be in there was to say the workers' comp system does fix some of those problems, but all of the capacity to, to talk about dignity in any way goes away. And I don't know that we That's need to right. be able to tell our life stories to the workers' comp claim. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I wanted just wanted that to be as a historian, find some historical actors rather than in my own voice. So here's the full swath of what this means. So like if you get COVID under workers' comp, you can't, the Democrats sold us out on that. You can't really get payment if you get work if you get covid at work it's going to be really hard but if you get covid and you can't work anymore you haven't only lost wages like your whole life is transformed in a whole bunch of ways and workers comp mm-hmm. only addresses the financial loss and so that was also part of why that's in there is i wanted to be able to say look at how expansive human dignity and multifaceted human dignity and human life is 
and look at the tiny segment that we're allowed to officially care about through the institutions that they create. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, it's it's really mm-hmm. I think it's a powerful kind of reminder that that you sort of say, like, I, I think I like I like your invocation of Pulantzas when you say, like, the body is not uh, a biological uh, yeah. entity. It's a political institution, right? That Absolutely. Like, it's actually created by um, this sort of palimpsested uh, series of of legal and political fights and decisions. And I mean, I think regardless of what one can say about um, kind of what is lost from the um, like in the in the absence of the trial and the move towards the like the statistical life table is the way of adjudicating these things. I mean, the I, the one thing that I take away from it is that like it that uh, th- those kinds of claims are a genre that prevent uh, wh- whatever else they do to materially improve people's lives. They also prevent the politicizing of the regime itself. Like you don't see. I mean, like maybe I'm just not paying attention, but you know, like work, work, workman's comp is not like uh, at the seem seem to be at like the top of any any sort of like list of major sort of like labor fights that are happening uh, right, right now. Even though it still obviously matters and the the regime sucks, um, but like I'm curious, you know, now that you you've like done this this like pretty profoundly like revelatory like uh, historical work, like what is the like what are the opportunities for politicizing it given that it sort of rationalized itself to the point and legalized itself to the point where uh, it, it's sort of invisible? Like, what do you see yeah. like emerging from it? Well, I mean, in terms of the, the political opportunities that are within these institutions, to my mind, are deeply attenuated. Now, you know, I'm a college professor for a living uh, I try to be nice to my students, et cetera. The revolution's not breaking out in my grade book, you know. So I, right. you know, I, I try we're in our in our in our limited contexts. Let me try again. So Mark Mark says that we're all we people are character masks, like we all play these systemic roles. Mm-hmm. I think as individuals wearing our character masks, as individuals playing our roles, like me as a college professor and so on the machinery of the system moves on in the way that it will move on. And there are moments when it may seize up and will reorganize itself, but like real change is going to come from like taking off the masks and refusing to play the roles. And that only happens through large numbers of people collectively refusing their social position. So that's true with the labor movement. That's true with the, uh, with the Stonewall riots, the rights for, for gay and lesbian folks. That's true with disabled people and the disabled disabled people's rights movement. That's true for immigrants. So broadly large numbers of people, sort of stepping off stage, so to speak, kind of breaking the fourth wall, so to speak. Um, and so I think like, you know, you know, that said, there are good people who are trying to be labor lawyers and, and lawyer and you know, disability rights lawyers and so on. And it's good that they're doing that work. Like if you get hurt at work, you want to have a good workers comp lawyer. You, you don't want to have one who's, a, you know, you want someone who cares about you and, and an individual human level that really does matter. But I, I don't think there are fundamental political opportunities in any of these institutions. I think the, all those institutions are all of the kind yeah. of deep opportunities of what we need are going to be created through people creating their own institutions under their own popular control and and really, you know, large strikes, large demonstrations making trouble. Well, I, yeah, that makes sense. And and I think it's also so important to look at this history really critically because 
I think it's just much easier, right, to set goals of reform because you don't have to start from scratch. But if you do not um, take the time to really look and analyze, you know, the the sort of, I think, trends and patterns that we start to see emerge, right, in reformism, in what gets adopted and what becomes expanded and then what becomes normalized. I mean, you you write in your book sort of about history as a process of normalization. And, you know, I, I think how we choose to remember things and how we choose to look at things is really important. And this is, I mean, this is why, like, I appreciate this work. This is also why I appreciate, like, Marta Russell's work, because you have this real commitment to saying, okay, you know, beyond the social model, yes, disability is socially constructed. Part of the problem is that, you know, as a disabled person, I am excluded from the workforce and I must be excluded from the workforce to maintain my social welfare disability benefits, right? And that this is a fundamental regime of, um, you know, forcing poverty. And as Marta Russell writes, this is a kind of uh, a way of enforcing bad labor conditions, right? That the, the idea of disability being exclusion from the workforce, being a negation of your identity as a worker, which you're brought up your whole life, you know, being told to look forward to and think about, right? We're raised that way in the United States under capitalism. So it's it's a negation of your fundamental identity and your sense of self, um, which people, you know, in the anti-psychiatry movement, like David Cooper wrote about, you know, as Marta Russell writes about it, I think forces people who are in the workforce to accept um, bad working conditions, right? As we were talking about, like with Amazon, because the alternative is this coercive situation of, unemployment, right? It also forces disabled people to hide their identities in the workplace for fear of being found out because oftentimes if you're found out to be disabled because the norm um, that really starts to emerge at this time, right, partially um, as a result of changes in thoughts around workers' compensation law, right, and how we should compensate for injury and disablement and what a worker is really worth to a company to take on, not just in terms of potential surplus profit um, through the manipulation of their labor power, but in terms of risk, right? You know, we're in this sort of actuarial insurance-mediated age, and it's no wonder that people who um, receive a lower actuarial value and a higher risk score, right, are excluded intentionally. And, and it's just so important to think through these things critically, because if we don't, we'll keep passing bullshit like, you know, expanding, um, you know, privatized Medicare or, um, st- you know, stuff like th- this stuff just can't continue. And, and I think it's it's. Uh, some people say that it's like depressing, right, to sort of look at history and realize that there is kind of no saving stuff. But I also think that it's like very inspiring and it's very reassuring to me to be like, you know what? No, naturally, people don't hate disabled people and not want them <laughs> right. around. We made it that way. We made they a decision. Made it that way. They right. made it that way. <laughs> they made it right, and there was there were decisions made, and there were political, social, and normative consequences as a result of changes to one of the fundamental ways that we dictate norms, which is really always where disability has been relegated to in recent decades, which is in the arena of law, which is why it's like all legal histories, in my opinion, 
need to consider a like a disability analysis because if you don't like you're going to miss out on this entire facet of employment that we completely keep separately because of legal norms that sort of emerge in the progressive era you know along with the like emergence of eugenics which is again just a another way of sort of explaining away the same process of removing disabled people from society i, I couldn't agree more you know and i guess I kind of have three thoughts, three or four thoughts. One is, you know, I think it's easy to think about like we want better institutional conditions, and and, and of course we do. I've got three kids. My oldest is twelve. My youngest is four. The pandemic is frightening. The future of climate change is frightening. And you know, and and we can imagine. This. I like this Peter Phrase book for futures, where he's like, "There's communism, socialism. I forget them, but there's like kind of like a really good one, a really the bad other one. two, and then the other two are like kind of like not that great, but like one's a little bit better than the other." And be like, the reality in the in the short term is like, you know, I want are my kids going to have the 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 really awful future, the like not that great future, or the like a little better, but still not the great future. Like that's, that's a realist position, you know, certainly in the next five years, I think. Um, and I think like, that's understandable that people think that way. There are huge human stakes to that, the people who we care deeply about. And it's very, and we, and we, we, if you're in touch with reality, you can't, you have to think that way. Right. That said, I think the criteria value of evaluation fundamentally are not what's the new achieved institutional condition and in kind of like objectively in the world. But I think it's like, what's the, living subjectivity of the movement and like the kind of movement controlled institutions. And so like, and, and as an onward moving force for justice. And I think that often what happens are movements move forward and they force institutional changes. And those changes sort of break up the conditions that the movement was politicizing. And then we have to sort of start back from scratch. So that's kind of one thought is I think like fundamentally it has to be about fostering living movements for justice, which have their own institutions, but they're not necessarily institutionalized within the kind of official institutions of capitalism in the state. The, the second thought is, you know, I think there, there's this line in the, the Charles Kerr translation of the Internationale, it's, oh, we want no condescending saviors to rule us from their judgment hall. And I think that these historical processes throw up condescending saviors um, and some of them are a lot better than others, you know, like Elizabeth Warren <laughs> is a much better condescending savior than Joe Biden. But, you know, fundamentally, we want no condescending saviors. And so I think that's right. also, if it's emerging through processes of collective action that recognize the, the dignity and intelligence and fundamentally that the actors are regular people themselves, that's very different than a process of experts acting on behalf of others. And then on the, the depressing point, I mean, <laughs> I don't enjoy, I, I like to laugh. I'm pretty goofy. I like music and art and like hanging on my kids. I don't enjoy the amount of time that I spend thinking about misery. And that does kind of get me down. But I think, you know, I get that response sometimes. Like, oh, your stuff's so depressing. And I'm like, well, it, it's and per, depending on the politics, if they're liberal people, I sometimes get of like a, boy, you, this is really bleak and pessimistic as if that means it's wrong. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, but is it, is it, tell me what, tell me what's wrong in it. And they kind of look uncomfortable. They're and, like, and, no, no, you're supposed to make it sound okay, though. That's yeah. your, that's your that's role your, in society. That's why, that's why you're allowed to be a professor. You're supposed to tell us apologetic stories. Yeah. So I, but I have more like, well, you know, actually it's not a pessimistic story. No, not I push at all. Back and I'm like, I, cause you know, I, cause I'll say, look, look, cause I often be like, well, all right, 
because at my job, I work in an undergraduate legal studies department. So I get this question of like, okay, but, but what are we as future lawyers going to do? And I, I talked <laughs> to a law school classroom and one of the students said, you know, one thing your book is good at is giving law students existential crises because I don't get the sense that I can use the law for justice too much. That's well, a good, you know, that's, that's, a, that's generative that's though. That's a huge compliment. Yeah. I have a former, I have a former, one of my proudest moments, I have a former student who was like, I was going to go to law school and now he's working as a, uh, he just got done salting with Unite here and he's trying to get a job as an organizer. Um, I <laughs> didn't do it. I provided the context and he thought his way there. Um, but, um, you know, I, so people, are, I say, look, the reality is injustices like the ones I talk about will continue unless there's massive institutional transformation in society. Mm-hmm. Maybe the specifics will change, but, but nothing fundamental changes unless there's a fundamental reorganization. Society's fundamental, capitalist society is fundamentally violent. And I get this, that's very pessimistic. And I'm like, that's not pessimistic. First of all, it's true. So whether it's pessimistic or not, it's just true. Second, right. it's not pessimistic because I think we could stop having this. I think we have an economy that doesn't kill. I genuinely believe that. We could we could have a zero fatality economy. Um, and then people flip and they're like, oh, that's utopian. And I'm always like, well, yes. I'm either a pessimist or a utopian. Like you can't, you can't come at me with both of those things. You got to pick one. It's the I think problem like, is you're in a utopian pessimist then, right? The <laughs> well, I think that's the thing with like liberals are like this right. kind of like, Liberals are the utopian pessimists. So they're like, hey, we're just going to get to the best capitalism and it'll still be really shitty, but it's a theodicy. Like, we're going to achieve the best possible world. And people like you, <laughs> people you love, are still going to die a lot, but like, suck it up because that's the best possible world. No, and I, I yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think we get, we get that comment all the time of like, oh, this is sort of pessimistic or oh, this is depressing. And it's like, no, it's actually just, um, it's just how things are. It's just being critical and looking at what's around us and saying, really, what is this going to do? Like, it's okay to ask questions. Like, is this really going to do anything good? Because we need to have these conversations. So it's just this like mindset of sort of forcing the, you know, the acceptance and the consent for like continuing to keep on and carry on under like all of these, you know, I think as you're saying, like incredibly arbitrary and, um, uh, artificial circumstances of like repetitive industrial violence. You know, it occurs to me as you're talking that the people who think that perspectives like ours are pessimistic are people who don't find these phenomena outrageous. And they're people who think eugenics doesn't exist anymore. And they're like, well, I mean, I also think, I also think it probably includes people uh, who might think it's outrageous, but are in fact, I, I, I I have there's I have a sympathy right for my for critics of, of this sort of perspective is and I you which know which is what I appreciate <laughs> which which is in the sense that like I can see how one looking at this would become so bewildered uh, yes. that you would you would be able to recognize its grotesqueness and then and then sort of just uh, you know sh- shield your eyes from it right like but I think but this is the challenge right and you you do sort of. I like that you bring in like the idea of genre a little bit in your, um, you know, in mm-hmm. your work, mm-hmm. because in a way, you know, the, the, whether it's the, the trial or like the, the policy or the program, all of these things, in addition to like having real binding authority in the world, they also tell stories about the world. Yes. And I think mm-hmm. I always feel like mm-hmm. people, I, people are like, Oh, what's your podcast? Like, I'm like, Oh, you know, it's a different kind of genre than uh many podcasts <laughs> like you know but it is but i but i see what you do in the book like you have this you have like the the historical narrative ends and you have this like coda essentially and i sort of see this as trying to tell a different kind of story about uh the world that that actually takes seriously um the ruins uh, of, of these sorts of systems 
and says, okay, now like what, what actually do we learn uh, about this from politics? It, basically what you do is you don't do the thing that like liberal historiography does, which is like you treat like you don't treat history like this sort of like, you know, uh, you know, that you're like the, the, the judge and uh, then you're just sort of like passing judgment and like, okay, now, you know, uh, and, and, and here's where we are. Y- you actually do see it as, as a sort of generative, ha- as having generative potential. I do. And if I could put, if I could, I, mean, I can agree to disagree on this, but I want to push back just slightly on the outrage thing. T- to my mind, there are a lot of people, you said grotesque. I, there's a lot of people who agree that this stuff is grotesque. They think it's tragic and we're topping out. And so it's this kind okay. of existential thing of like, this is so awful. And we all agree that it's awful. You're like, I'm sure Biden, at least in, in a speech anyway, I don't know what he thinks in public. I don't want to anthropomorph- anthropomorphize Biden, but but in public, he would be like, um, you know, we all agree that the 800,000 deaths are very sad. But like, you know, they're not only sad, they're like a fucking outrage. And like, you know, there should be like a Nuremberg trial. Like Biden should go to prison for his role in the administration of mass death. And that's the... Because it didn't have to happen. And so I think like the liberal response, and I, I take your point, there's a continuum between these positions. It's not a stark divide, but there's a kind of liberal yeah. response of like, I feel the pain of the world just as much as you do, but I don't believe that the world can be fundamentally different. Where And I think that that's the pessimistic take about human potential. Like we're, to my mind, it's, like we, it's so obvious, and, you know, in a way that this is a limitation of the book because I don't make the case that the world could be different because I don't, I that's just like such an axiomatic belief. Like I can't imagine not thinking that it's like a part of who I am at this point, but like, to my mind, like none of this had to, all of this had to happen given a starting condition about society. And all of these things will continue to happen in some version while we're in some version of the society. But, but this is a, a fully eliminable type of society. Like we could have a, you know, we could have a communist revolution. We can have a fully, uh, humane society and, and people who don't think that's possible are like, well, Hey, wherever we top out, you know, someone's going to die. I actually have had people. So this has been a shock to me as a learning experience, writing a book and in lots of ways, I've had a certain species of, of big hearted liberal colleague who, who really does mean well. And I say things part of when I talk about the book, I say this at the end of the book, this isn't over about 5,000 people a year still die at work in the U S uh, globally. It's much higher. It'll be higher after the COVID pandemic because of COVID deaths, though a lot of those won't be counted as workplace deaths. But you know, I have people say, well, you know, there's 300 something million Americans, 5,000 deaths isn't that many. And, and what I've realized that that's, that's a reflection, I think, of people's class background. Like that tends to be a pattern of who says that and who doesn't. Because yeah. people, people who are, so like, like I said, I'm the only person in my family to go to college. Every member of my immediate family growing up has had a workplace injury, myself included. Um, so for me, I'm like, that. I see that 5,000 that number of 5,000 people. I'm like, those are people like my family and people I grew up with. Um, that, that, so that's like 5,000 people like us, you know, close to home will die every year. And I think certain other people are like 5,000 of those people over there will die. And that's so unfortunate, but it's not a whole lot. And, and there's this, and I think it feels very different for understandable reasons. Like that's a, that's not something people, people chose. It's just a kind of life experience and institutional experience. But I think like that's the thing is like the left liberal perspective thinks that the best achievable society is just not as good as the best achievable society that those of us on the socialist left think we can have. And that kind of fundamental difference, I think, sets 
does a lot of work in, in the assessments that people make in terms of if, if the present is deeply unfortunate versus deeply outrageous. And you know, I can agree to disagree on that, but I wanted to. to no, no, that, that makes a lot of. I think, I think, yeah. I think, I essentially that that's that's a much better way of saying <laughs> what I was going for. I like that. Point okay. for Nate. <laughs> Win owned. I hope it's clear that Nate Holdren owns <laughs> Death Panel. <laughs> well, I, I hope it's clear that that is like the the least possible who I am. I'm not a hate the base. No, no, no. So I, 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 I feel you, brother. Cool. I feel you. I appreciate it. No, cool. I want to make sure. There's only collective <laughs> learning here. Yeah, well put. Yeah. No, and I, I mean, I think too. One of the things that that is often used to sort of explain this away in the realm of disability, right, is that there's this like uh, kind of inherent aversion to having disabled people around that it's just like culturally not something that we want and that all of these sort of political and legal structures that reinforce and reproduce and really have these incredibly formative roles in our in our normative understandings of the role of the social role of disability in society but also the economic role of disability in society right um you know, that those things are actually downstream of a broader cultural preference um, against disability, right? And these are the kind of narratives, right, that just completely erase work like yours. And I, I wonder if part of it is that there is a sort of trick to, I guess, the behavioral norms of legal systems, right, with the kind of idea of, like, respecting prior legal decisions. And mm. Part of one of the things that I feel like I just find myself really thinking about after reading your book is is how much this um, has influenced the way that we sort of construct our norms to how much actually the legal practice of looking to prior decisions to shape future decisions when we well know that these decisions, especially ones like uh, decisions to um, itemize body parts as part of the incorporation of workmen's comp laws, right? Um, that these are also emerging parallel to things like eugenics and the sort of statistical management um, and and statistical genocide of the population, right, being really formalized. And And I wonder if part of like the sort of legal historical machine is about teaching us ways to ignore the contexts in which laws and legal norms arise, you know, and and I really appreciate your book because I feel like it does a really good job of shaking that framework loose and saying, no, you know, this is really the context that that we're looking at. And here are the consequences. And and I think, you know, the important thing that that really it makes me wonder about is sort of how does this then influence all the decisions that come after, right? Because so much of how we construct like these legal narratives is through this process of looking back to you know prior decisions and those sort of narrativized court cases. Thank you for that. This is super thought provoking. We were joking around, and you said you know only collective learning here, and this is tremendously thought provoking. Um, so once I think there's definitely some work that the law does. I also you know I don't I'm I'm kind of above my pay grade here, but I suspect there's also something about I don't know if it's about liberalism as a kind of political ideology or if it's something that's sort of generated intrinsically by kind of capitalist society institutions ideologically. I'm not sure, but but I feel like, you know, you said there's this appeal to disgust or, you know, we're kind of like, oh, able people don't want to be around disabled people kind of at a gut level. And that's a kind of fixed cultural thing or it's a slow moving cultural thing that has to be taken apart. 
And I think, you know, at one point in time, I would have found that plausible, you know, before I wrote my dissertation, I would have found that plausible, but, you know, um, it reminds me of something that, um, in the nineties, Etienne Balabar and, and, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein wrote this book on racism and, and Balabar talks about the emergence, he's talking about France, but he talks about the emergence of a new cultural racism. It doesn't appeal to biological difference and it takes immigrants as a key figure. And it's, but they talk about that. The, the immigrants who are, you know, they're like, hey, we're not bigoted. There's no biological appeal here at all. But they're like the, uh, the, the culture of the immigrant gets talked about in ways that are like rhetorically identical. They might as well be biological because right. they're like, oh, it's a different culture. It's, you know, as if that's fixed. And so I think there is this kind of fixing that goes on um, kind of. And, you know, at one point in time in the U.S., I'm sh- so my, I'm, I grew up in a mixed race family and um my, I lived with my grandparents as a kid for a while because there's some disorganization in my my parents' lives. But um, you know, I love my grandparents very much, and they're both dead now, so I can speak only about it. But you know, they were not comfortable <laughs> that my mom married a Mexican guy. Like they were, you know, put it mildly, and that's that's a hard thing. And they loved me. They were like parents. You know, they were parents to me, and were good parents to me. But they were, you know, they had some racist views. And you know, at one point in time, you know, look, they people like them would have said, "Well, it's just natural." There's this kind of disgust about you know interracial. Right stuff, and I grew up in a kind of conservative working class home, where I grew up. You know, people would have certainly said, "Oh, well, it's just natural." You see a man holding another man's hand; that's just like naturally disgusting, you know. Or that's, or you know, or well, culturally, it's going to take a long time. And so, I think like there's this kind of process of fixing existing hierarchies and claiming that they can't be can't go away, or that they can only go away very very gradually, and that's all institutionally produced and the the culture, you know, oh, look, people are discussing so on. That's a justificatory ideology that shows up after right. the institutions and helps depoliticize the institutional arrangements. That's not actually causal. Yeah. yeah. And I absolutely don't think it comes secondary to the law. And I think the way yeah. that disability is so frequently relegated to the legal arena just shows actually how the sort of cultural disgust is absolutely downstream of these, these sort of legal frameworks that um, have deep-seated historical roots to the point that they've become so naturalized. You know what I mean? Totally. And, and I, so I really, really appreciated your book because well, it just does such a good job showing that in a very specific way. Well, one other thought on this, you think about the relationship between class and disability. Yeah. Is, um, disability is classed and becoming disabled will also change people's class status to significant degrees a lot of the time. So it seems to me that the further up the food chain people go, the less likely they are to encounter people with disabilities. Um, and the less disabling they're likely to find people's conditions. And conversely, the further down the food chain someone is, the more likely they're to encounter people who are disabled and the more likely particular conditions are to actually be disabling. And so I wonder if this is also like a, a situation where people at the top of the food chain are kind of projecting their experience of the world and universalizing it. Because um, like, you know, I'm not, you know, when, it was awful when my brother broke his back, but then he got really into wheelchair basketball and um, going to those sporting events, it really changed how I think about, about ability and disability. Because I was like, I, I can't shoot a basket at all, you know? And he's like, he's got, he was training with the Paralympic team for a while. Like, um, so what, what counts as ability or you know, what, what capacity means in that context is actually really like a slippery object epistemologically. And like, mm-hmm. I only have that experience in a particular setting. And I think like, who's going to have those experiences and who's, who isn't? The distribution right. of experiences socially is classed. And so I also wonder if like that's specifically like a, kind of ruling class myths specifically that there's sort of a tell on their part. And they're like, well, look, of course, none of us want to be around people like that. Right guys. 
Um, and, and I think it's also, you know, it is the myth of the, the super crip, right? The person who can like justify themselves yeah. by overcoming their disability yeah, to be welcomed totally. in society, which is absolutely, um, you know, an economic position and something that is enabled through um, economic access to things like, you know, a mobility device that doesn't fall apart and has like a seat that works so you can play um, totally. wheelchair basketball or like friend of the show, Sophie Health. Um, shout out to Sophie, who we love, who is a double amputee, um, who doesn't have running legs because they cost like thousands of dollars per foot. And so when you see people in the Paralympics doing, you know, sprinting and you have these narratives of sort of this, you know, what, what's called in disability studies is a super crypt, the person who you know, overcomes and is so inspiring because they go above and beyond what a normal person can do in spite of their disability, you know, that erases all the people like Sophie who, you know, um, hasn't been able to afford to run. Right. And, and we, we don't talk about disability that way through this economic context. And I, and I think it's really important to, to really just like, be, you know, and I know that the disability justice is really like the disability justice movement as it's distanced itself from the liberal disability rights movement, which was largely led by people of an upper income class position because it was led by a lot of the white survivors of polio, right? And a lot of the people who survived polio were the people who had families who could afford to um, purchase all the really expensive medical equipment that you needed to have in your home that wasn't covered. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit in my interview with Deshaun Harrison, where they were like, you know, sometimes the problem with like liberal disability rights movements is that they're saying like, well, you know, disabled people are treated substandard and I'm like a white disabled person. and I don't deserve that because that's the kind of like treatment yeah. that people of color have. And I, and I think you're so right. It's like this is how the law you know, creates these cultural and social norms and these political preferences that become just so incredibly violent when they're played out interpersonally. So you, you know the disability studies literature better than I do. And, and so I'm curious, I want to pick your brain on this because this is something I'm newly confused about. I'm, I'm writing something now after the book on disability and law. And, um, and I'm kind of moving we're moving between kind of implicitly between two different definitions of disability and 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 not and not kind of squaring them. And, and, and one way I think about this, so I think, you know, the bodily conditions are real. My brother really needs a, needs a wheelchair, but right. like, there's nothing, nothing about that condition is socially disqualifying. It's, it's the context that makes that condition socially disqualifying. And so I've been sort of moving my toward thinking about like people that, you know, if this is, these are just kind of neurological and physical differences. Um, but people need certain, things uh in order to facilitate their flourishing individually and their participation in society you know so 200 years ago 300 years ago i would be blind i would be fully blind i'm, I'm, I'm so nearsighted and i would not have had someone in my class picture would not have had access to corrective lenses the way that i do now right and so like there's this and also you know like there's it's not only the individual device my brother doesn't only need my brother-in-law doesn't only need a wheelchair he needs a built environment and, and other kinds of things. And so, but in a certain sense, it's, it's really that context is it like the, 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 the social condition, it seems to me is entirely reducible to context and providing the resources. And, and that comes back to what feels distressingly like a kind of vulgar Marxist position of like the superstructure, which is not what I think generally, but it's like, look, the reason my brother-in-law has a shitty wheelchair is because he's on SSDI and he can't get a better right. one because there's any money. And if our, if we were a, a millionaire family, he would have a different kind of a life. Um, but that, it, what, what I struggle with in that is that there is a, a reality to the, to the condition, 
but that, I, I've moved back and forth between wanting to call the condition disability. And then I'm, in this piece, I've been trying to very rigorously say impairment for the condition and disability for the social condition. Yeah. Um, but but it seems to me that that term does kind of double work. And in my mind, I, I kind of flip back and forth. So I'm kind of just curious what you think in terms of uh, the terminological. Does that make sense? There's kind of like the, no, like if we have a social yeah, revolution absolutely. tomorrow, if we have a social revolution tomorrow that's fully emancipatory, Every disabled person's life is going to be wildly different. And it's not a fully emancipated revolution unless that happens. Right. And I think fundamentally, like the socialist uh, discourse or the sort of like left discourse broadly, and I'm talking globally speaking, is not prepared to have a revolution that is, um, you know, at all paying attention to uh, these issues. Right. Whether it's issues of disability, issues of... Um, you know, queerness, trans rights, um, issues of racism, right? Like these sort of edges and these margins, um, there are really, you know, I think there's a lack of awareness of how that fits into uh, left critical analysis, right? Like, I just think that structurally, um, you know, this is a feature of this sort of dominant culture, right? Like, and who gets to speak and what uh, intellects are reproduced in the sort of like collective um, you know, cultural imaginary. And so within disability for a very long time, uh, disability studies really emerged out of the creation of the social model of disability, where you, this is the kind of idea that you're talking about of it's not that there is something inherent about disabled people that is sort of pretense for their exclusion from society, but that their exclusion from society is socially constructed either through neglecting to consider them in the built environment, either through exclusionary workplace practices and employment law or um, marriage inequality or, you know, housing inequality, educational inequality. And a lot of these, you know, histories and victories that we think about within disability rights in the United States, but also all over the world, actually have, have been in this arena of trying to, um, you know, basically from... I'd say like the 70s forward, trying to use the social model to create these pathways for ending what people at the time are calling like segregation and, you know, just a a Mm -hmm. categorical exclusion of disabled people from society. But the original theory of the social model was actually a Marxist theory. Mm. Um, And it didn't stay one, right? So this is actually an idea that comes from Michael Oliver and the the British school and initially it it is a political theory it's a it's a theory about how politically and socially disabled people are excluded and how that sort of is translated through economics right on the management of markets and the uh, sort of capitalist preferences for managed markets and um, artificial scarcity and it's it it's popular, I think, because it's right um, <laughs> in one sense. And it's taken up by the broader disability rights movement. And it becomes this version of itself. And Artie and I get into this in the book um, a little bit that we wrote. But it's, you know, it comes sort of and becomes this sort of liberal depoliticized version of itself. And what we what we hear when we uh, hear people talk about the social model of disability now is so different from the original conception, which is actually closer to Marta Russell's money model of disability, which sort of posits that 
you know, body is not um, profitable to the sort of like capitalist enterprise as people who sell labor power are made to be profitable by other means. Mm. Um, they're sort of repurposed through the commodification of their survival and their existence. And they sort of are taken out of the labor force into this doubly commodified existence. If you're sort of talking about like labor already being commodified. So you know, the the real struggle, actually, and, and a conversation that's happened in disability studies for like decades now is the social model is great, but the social model doesn't quite cover the whole picture. So what a lot of people have proposed and what was like the most popular thing emerging out of the sort of 1990s, uh, early aughts, post ADA landscape is the idea of the biopsychosocial model that you also have to like take into consideration this sort of broad cultural disgust angle. But again, still, it refuses to acknowledge the sort of original Marxist um, material analysis that underlied the social model. And I think it's this is why these models of disability, when you try and use them, they don't quite fit, right? Because they're actually missing a huge and very critical component um, that, you know, basically exists in Michael Oliver's work, it's sort of reproduced by David Cooper, who's doing anti-psychiatry. But, you know, Cooper also had horrible ideas. And, you know, and then it's sort of picked up again by Marta Russell. But these are people who are like, you know, Michael Oliver does have some, um, you know, purchase and recognition within disability studies. But Marta Russell doesn't. And, and you know, David Cooper was written off for his own drunkenness for many years. So it's, it's a kind of, um, you know, he hegemonic tendency, right, where you just the ideas that we use to try and talk about disability are ineffectual because they've been stripped of this incredibly crucial component, which is you cannot talk about disability without talking about labor. You cannot talk about labor without talking about disability. And you can talk all you want about disability and the social context, but if there's no political and economic perspective or analysis in there, you're really not going to get much further than we need more disabled people represented in society. We need representation. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, an identitarian version. This is really this is really thought Thank you. I, I said this too when we were talking about maybe coming on the podcast. I encountered Russell's work after I finished my book, and I'm still reading that stuff. And I'm a slow reader, and life's been really hectic. But one, one I have one more question if you don't mind. So, um, and I didn't realize your book was done. I just googled it. We're talking. I, I knew you were working on it. Congratulations! I'm looking forward to when it comes out. And I'm excited to read it. I guess part of what I'm think what I'm fumbling for, what I'm trying to think through myself and kind of recent work is. I can imagine two different valid answers to this question. One would be in a fully communist society, disabled people are full social participants and are not second class and so on. Another would be in a fully communist society, disability no longer exists as a category. And instead what we have are just different people need different things for flourishing and a communist society provides everyone what they need to flourish. I'm a really big fan of this book by Tony Smith called Beyond Liberal Egalitarianism. Um, it's it's one of my favorite books, and it's a it's a Marxist critique of kind of left liberal political philosophy, and he argues that uh, for what he calls a, a normative individualist perspective, and he argues that Marx was a normative individualist, not as an individualist in any other sense in social analysis, but in terms of like every human being has a full right to flourish, and a good society would be one that provides. It. So you know, Marx says uh, for you know from each to from each according to need to each according to ability, and um, a society Marx has these remarks about we'd have a society where the the development of, of each is the condition of development of all and so on. And so a good side of one where, where each and all are harmonized and everybody is provided what they need to flourish. And, and, and I can imagine catching that out in two ways. And one would be, there are still people who are disabled and that's still the social category. 
but they're allowed disabled people are allowed to flourish just as much. And I could also imagine situations where like that category doesn't exist anymore and just there's differences in what people need. And part of what I'm asking, I think, implied in that is to what degree we think disability is fully a category derived from capitalism or if it's an, it has an independent logic. And I don't know what I think about that. I've recently gotten very confused about this. And as, as I said, you know the disability <laughs> studies literature, and I do. So I'm intensely curious what you think. Just because I know the disability studies literature doesn't mean that I agree with it, I think is the main problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, and no, I, fair, I think fair. this I just, is the real question, mean, though. This as is someone the who's question. an expert on like, this, I want to know what you think. You know, That's what I'm I, to say. I, this is, I think, a question that, I, that I've struggled with for a long time and something that's really important because so many uh, critiques of like of left thought are that they're, you know, inherently somehow exclusionary to one aspect of disability or another, which is why one of the things that we focus on the show um, so closely on is actually kind of like an inverse that the question of like whether disability should or should not necessarily need to exist as a category under communism or under any utopia, you know, uh, whatever, that that's actually not the question that we need to be looking at. That the, hmm. like, the more important question is, how do we actually get rid of the category of worker yeah, itself? Yeah, I like that. Because like that that's the much. more important question. It's not the issue of disability or non-disability. Non -disability. disability is a continuum. It is socially constructed. It is a contextual, um, natural phenomenon. There's no um, amount of pathologization that we can do to quantify the amount of human difference, right? And what, what we decide is a disability constantly changes and is always in flux. So for me, that's why what's really important is that where does the sort of social exclusion come from? Well, it actually comes from designating who is a worker, and not yeah. so much designating who is disabled. So that's why we always try and flip it, because I think as you're talking about, there are these like huge limitations to the way that um, normally we think of these things and normally these things are conceptualized and discussed. That's really thoughtful and helpful. I appreciate it. As you were talking, it was kind of like, as a labor historian, I'm like, you know, pro-worker, anti-work. I think that's kind of a right. abolish the tyranny of work and the tyranny of wage work as a the means to flourish. And, and we'll see what happens afterward rather than sweat it too right. much. Well, and I think it just really speaks to this kind of coercive relationship that we all have to our role as workers, right? And and that's very much, I think, one of the biggest problems with capitalism. But um, oh. is there anything that we did not get a chance to cover? No, this was really, I got a lot out of this. Um, this is what I was hoping would happen, that it would be a thought-provoking, exciting conversation. So thanks very much. Nate, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your book. I really yeah, it appreciate great. it. It's a good book that people should read. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to reading what you're working on too when it's done. So please let us know. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I uh, I wrote the book by myself for a long time and was and hoped to write a book that was good to think with. And I wasn't sure to what extent I'd pulled it off. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you found it good to think with. I'm, I'm honored. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, absolutely. And if people want to follow you or your work, where can they find you online? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, but I'm mostly just complaining about my life. Uh <laughs> But uh, I, I'm working on other stuff, kind of scholarly settings. I occasionally, very occasionally write a write for a, a labor movement focused blog called Organizing Work. And if you want to follow Nate on Twitter, you can follow him at N underscore hold. That's right. And, yeah. um, and patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. Please uh, remember you can use code in the store if you'd like a discount and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore and as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week the plane for dublin has just departed please cue 
with your American Express cards at gate number 15. Thank you. Bye.